Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today is Benjamin Franklin V. Ben is a longtime friend. He's a retired English professor at the University of South Carolina. And for a number of years, from 1977 to 1992, he had a program on jazz here in South Carolina Public Radio called Jazz in Retrospect. And Ben has produced a very interesting and informative book, An Encyclopedia of South Carolina Jazz and Blues Musicians. So, Ben, with that long introduction, welcome to the journal. Thank you, Walter. It's a pleasure to be here. So, what was your inspiration for putting together this book? Why? Well, it's kind of a long story. Uh, As a teenager, I became pretty profoundly interested in jazz, which not many of my friends uh, were. And one thing led to another, and I began collecting records, listening to them, expanding my interests and tastes to the point that it became a real passion. I couldn't get enough of it, and I continued to cultivate my interest. When I moved to Columbia, South Carolina from Michigan in 1976, I asked myself, what jazz musicians or blues musicians do I know of who were born in South Carolina? I could come up with one name and one name only, and that was Dizzy Gillespie. Okay. And because of the depth of my uh, interest in jazz, uh, both as a listener and, it turned out, as a researcher, I began asking around what other jazz musicians are from South Carolina. And quite a few were identified immediately, such as Freddie Green, who was a longtime guitarist with Count Basie for 50 years, as a matter of fact. I began contacting the living musicians with the idea in mind, especially with the older ones, of interviewing them and publishing the interviews as a book to to have a written record of these people who go back to the very beginning of the jazz experience itself. So finally, I conducted those interviews, and the University of South Carolina Press published them to my great delight. So in the process of identifying these musicians, I asked myself, what other musicians are there? And it wasn't long after asking that question that a book that you edited called the South Carolina Encyclopedia came out, and that inspired me further. And this is the reason. Because you had a space limitation, as every author does, I I think, you were unable to include some people you might otherwise have liked to Include well, and, and you know, in in going through your book, first of all, going back to the introduction and what you could include and not include, because when you do an encyclopedia, you have to set some guidelines as to who you were going to include in your encyclopedia. Uh, yes, uh, I did not uh, ask the question of myself: What contribution did someone make to the state uh, if that person was not born here to be included? My criteria were two. One, if a person was born in the state, that person qualified for inclusion. If the person was born and the next day moved out of the state and never returned, that person counted because he or she was uh, born in the state. 
But other than that, I had another, and that is uh, if someone resided in the state for five years or more, that person qualified. The five years was totally arbitrary, but part of the reason for selecting that number is if someone from New Jersey, say, attended our university, the University of South Carolina, and then left and never to return, that person would not qualify. So in part, it was the college experience, someone who was just here and then pulled out more or less immediately. So that was part of my thinking. Well, that in itself is is a daunting task. You had the interviews, but clearly this book, the people included here, go way beyond the interviews. Um, there are hundreds of folks you've got yes. included in here. Yes. And one of the things that I found in going through the different entries is for those who were native sons and daughters of South Carolina, particularly if they were African-American, at some point they're going to leave the state before they end up getting into the major music world. They might have been involved in local entertainment in clubs or in particularly some coming out of the gospel tradition in church choirs, but before they really hit the big time, they left South Carolina. Oh, yes. And part of the reason for that is uh, there's never been, at least to my awareness, what one would call a major jazz or blues scene uh, in the state. Uh, there are clubs, there are various venues, and it's now uh, played in, in major venues uh, like the Coger Center here in uh, uh, Columbia. But growing up back in those days, uh, roadhouses, for example, saloons, uh, the venues were not many, and they were not very impressive, frankly. But typically, the musicians honed their crafts in these venues and, as you say, went to where the uh, action was, which often, especially with jazz musicians, was New York. Mm -hmm. I mentioned before we uh, started recording that several of these folks I personally heard, and one of them to me was fascinating, Escarita. Uh, Escarita who actually had an influence—it wasn't just the fact of he himself was a performer, but he also had an impact on Little Richard. Um, and legend has it, uh, maybe it's even fact, because I think uh, Little Richard, Richard Pennyman was his name, uh, writes about it in uh, his uh, autobiography. Uh, and that is, he credits Escarita for inspiring him, Little Richard, to sport a pompadour. <laughs> oh. and, and if you've seen Escarita or even photographs of him, it's photographs for me, it seems to be about a foot high. <laughs> well, in Christmas 1963, home from college in Mobile, Alabama, the college cotillion, Escarita and his Escarettes performed. And yes, he had a pompadour that Madame de Pompadour would have <laughs> have envied. It was probably close to a foot high, huge. But then his performance on the keyboard, I mean, you can see where, I mean, he just danced, his hands danced across the keyboard, never stopped. An incredible evening. Yeah. Well, high energy, uh, oh. I assume. Oh, yes. I, I did not see him. But Little Richard also, I believe, credits him for the uh, energized piano playing to which you are uh, alluding. So there's kind of a, a, a mutual respect and influence from Escarita to Little Richard. Yeah. Where was Escarita from in South Carolina? Greenville. Greenville, okay. He, he was discovered by a, a white musician named Paul Peake, 
uh, whose career I also mentioned in there. But one thing, there are a couple of interesting things additional uh, about Escarita, at least I found in my research. And one is, what was the guy's birth name? Well, there are, there are many, uh, several uh, names given, but I went back into his high school records and found out that his name was S-Q-E-S-K-E-W, Reader, R-E-E-D-E-R. And some people have come up with that name in their own research, but say that he is S.Q. Reader Jr. The evidence does not indicate that he is a junior, that he is just S.Q. Reader, which is the same name as his father. Mm -hmm. And also, people say that he was a criminal, uh, not identifying what the, what his crimes were, and that he ended up in Rikers Island uh, in New York, a prison uh, there. They have no record of his having been there. But apparently he did die in uh, unfortunate uh, circumstances. He was one of those people in Brooklyn, anyway, who would stop cars uh, at intersections and get the squeegee out and uh, clean their windshield. It was a, a sad conclusion for uh, so, Escarita. So he had a burst of fame in the late 50s, early 60s, in New, ended up in New York. Because when I heard him, he was still on the, you might say, the, the, su- the Southern College circuit. And sadly, as many of the people you, not many, but a number you had a similar thing of either alcohol or drugs, they, they hit the skids financially. Mm-hmm. Yes, that uh, was his case. Uh, but you squelched the rumor that he died in Rikers. Uh, he, he, according to their records, uh, he never was an inmate there. Well, you look at his real name, S.Q. Reader, and right. you see where he came up with the stage name. Yes. Uh, I mean, the stage, stage names, I mean, that again is part of, if I said the charm of your book, I hope you're not going to be offended because, <laughs> you know, when when you have uh, ironing, Mr. Ironing Board or Chubby Checker. Or Chubby Checker. So, I mean, the, the stage names are, 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 you've covered all of that, and then, of course, in this case, you came up with with the real name. Yeah, but back to Chucky, Chubby Checker for a minute. Uh, do you, Walter, know how he came up with that name? No, I don't. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot or anything. Well, you just did, but that's okay. <laughs> Would I, you I like know, to know? <laughs> I, I know he was from near Trio. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm playing with you, of course. But he uh, was inspired uh, to use the name Chubby Checker uh, because of a famous musician, musician at that ta- time named Fats Domino. So you got Fats and Chubby and Domino and Checker. So there you have it. Hey, Blueberry Hill. Blueberry Hill. Fats Domino. Hey, (laughs) did did you find a thrill there? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, on Blueberry Hill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, and of course, again, for those of us who were children of of the 60s, the twist. The twist. Became... Major, not just a record, but popular record, but a major dance craze. Major dance craze, yes. Uh, and I the, mean, it, the tune itself was number one on the charts for, for months, the better part of a year, I think. Um, and kids today who think they're energetic on the dance floor don't know what it was like yeah. to do the twist. <laughs> uh, if I could shift direction using that as a segue, uh, there was a dance in the 1910s called the Shimmy. Uh, I was inspired to bring that up because you talked about the energy uh, in the twist. Well, the twist, I would say, was probably less energetic than the shimmy, Mm -hmm. which was up-tempo. 
it, it uh, the dance was primarily moving one's shoulders from the front to the rear alternately. Uh, it was kind of crazy, but it ha- the reason I mentioned that is that it has a South Carolina connection. Okay. And that connection is a musician and dancer by the name of Snow Fisher from Charleston. There was a tune composed by Spencer Williams called Shimmy Shawabble, which he wrote with Snow Fisher in mind. Snow Fisher was held forth at the uh, Elite Cafe in Chicago for the better part of a decade. And this Shimmy Shawabble, Spencer Williams wrote with Fisher in mind, and in fact, refers to Snow Fisher in the lyrics. So here is the first verse to Shimmy Shawabble from the uh, sheet music. Stop, look, listen. If you would like to learn a dance that you're missing, it's new, it's the latest piece. Old Snow, yay bow. Down south, he's got him going wild with this new sensation, this new dance creation. Hush your mouth, my honey child. And he goes on. No need to repeat all that, but you, you heard snow in there. And again, that is this person, Snow Fisher from Charleston. Unknown to practically anybody, but I, I'm able to give a pretty good uh, history of Snow Fisher in there, including his uh, activities in Europe. Well, again, that that is a uh, a part of the the story of a number of these African American musicians who make it big in America, and then particularly after World War One, go to Europe. Many of them stay in. Oh yes, particularly France or yes or England. But I love I love that connection with South Carolina because, of course, the Charleston. The shag. Right. These dances are coming out of uh, well, the Big Apple are coming out of the music scene in in South Carolina, and it's an intersection of African American music with particularly younger white folks that help evolve these national dances. I think the source, uh, from what I found, I think the source of the dance, the Charleston, is problematic. Okay. I don't think that is absolutely uh, known. Uh, the source of that, although one musician in this book we're talking about uh, is a guy named Charleston Brown. Uh, He was a Geechee dancer. That is a dance uh, indigenous to the the coast of uh, Carolina. And he is often credited with uh, inspiring the dance. I don't know that he is. That is a a claim uh, often made. Well, there's not any dispute about the Big Apple or the Shag. Oh, no. Oh, and now the shimmy. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so that's that's what makes when I keep talking about the charm of your book. Th- those are the kind of nuggets that just tickle me. I love I love it. Let's maybe listen to you've got some recordings here. Who would you like to to start with? What about Raleigh McGill? Okay, this is an odd one to use, but that's it's fine because it kind of shakes up things. Uh, it it gets to the issue of definition. What is jazz? What is the blues? Uh, I state in that book that these, to me, are terms that are commonly understood but really are extremely difficult to define, especially blues, because over time, blues incorporated, came to incorporate uh, genres that we might call rhythm and blues, doo-wop, 
uh, things such as that. And as a result, I have included such musicians. And one of them is Raleigh McGee, a tenor saxophonist. The selection I have included is what is the one most likely known by the greatest number of people. And that is a recording by the, a group called the Silhouettes. And the tune is Get a Job. Again, never heard them in person, but I do remember the song. Yes, anyone of a certain age definitely <laughs> knows that tune because it was number one. But while the lyrics are silly, they're, <laughs> they're inane, uh, nonetheless, it really struck a chord, and the saxophonist on this recording is Raleigh McGee from uh, South Carolina. Uh, uh, in the back, uh, part of the lyrics here are sha na 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 boom boom sha na 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 na. Well, and uh, anyone uh, familiar with the evolution and the uh, personalities in rock and roll know of a group called Shanana, and that name came from this recording. Okay. But while the lyrics, you'll, you'll hear these, the saxophonist is Raleigh McGee, R-O-L-L-E-E, -E, uh, from South Carolina. So, Ben, that particular song, we all grew up, we grew up with it, dancing to it, but that's pretty different from the work of Dizzy Gillespie or Clara Smith or you know, Barbara Miley played with Duke Ellington, but yet, particularly the saxophone, you, you're saying there's no question but what that's the jazz. Uh, jazz, or even more importantly, I'd say blues. Blues. Uh, a real bluesy feeling to it. Yes. And, well, and, and of course, the title itself could be, is, you know, blues talk about troubles and getting... Oh, yeah. yeah. Get okay. a job. Okay. Uh, so, the lyrics, though, I mean, really, uh, the, the voice the single voice that the various voices make is lamenting that he's being uh, badgered to go out and get a job. I mean, yeah. he's a lazy guy who just wants to sit around and read the papers or whatever. It's really kind of an amusing uh, uh, lyric to that. Well, and of course there were probably some other songs from that same era about, you know, Annie, Annie oh, yeah, had yeah. a baby. Oh, yeah, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, yeah. Annie had a baby and such. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's get back to, to more traditional jazz and, and blues and Dizzy Gillespie clearly is the best known of the South Carolinians. Yes. So let's talk about his career for a few minutes. Okay. He grew up in Shiraz, uh, went to North Carolina to Laurenburg Institute to uh, receive his uh, schooling. After that, he went to Philadelphia and very quickly found a job with a band of Frankie Fairfax. He signed on after that pretty soon uh, with Cab Calloway. And it was with Cab Calloway that he had his longest band affiliation. Uh, soon after that, uh, he, Gillespie, began having new ideas about music. Can't we do something other than just this typical big band jazz, if there is typical uh, big band jazz? And these ideas that he was formulating were also being formulated by other people elsewhere, namely Charlie Parker, who came out of Kansas City, uh, Thelonious Monk, the drummer Kenny Clark, uh, the guitarist Charlie Christian. There were a handful, uh, six or seven or so musicians who were thinking similarly in a way that musicians had not previously thought. Finally, they got together in New York at nightclubs in Harlem, began jamming. 
uh, these impromptu performances and came up with a music altogether different from what had been heard before. It was primarily for combos, uh, quintets, sextets. It was played at blistering speed, often. Uh, it uh, focused on dissonance. Uh, it had uh, different accents uh, from the drum. Uh, it was an altogether different approach to music. It was not dance music. People did not dance to this. It was for listening. It became what might be called, in that sense, art music. But to show how different this is from what people typically think of as big band music, Ellington, Basie, even somebody like Glenn Miller, why don't we take a look, uh, listen to a tune of Gillespie's composing called Shaw Nuff that dates from May of 1945. It has Gillespie on trumpet, Charlie Parker on alto saxophone, and the pianist is Al Haig. Gillespie was a, a major player on the music scene really until the time of his death. A lot of it was overseas, though. I mean, he, right after the war, World War II, uh, got to get a war straight here, <laughs> World War II, he toured Scandinavia. Oh, yes. Yes. And he was a goodwill ambassador for the Department of State. He toured South America, Europe, Asia, Middle East. Uh, he, he, was, he was everywhere. He was desired, uh, he, not only because of his music, but also his personality. He was, he was uh, something of a comedian, uh, had a real attractive stage presence. Uh, he'd uh, mug uh, a little bit. So it wasn't only music that made him attractive. It was his personality uh, also. You mentioned in, in your entry on, on him, there's a subgenre he helped establish, Afro-Cuban jazz. Yes, there were rhythms from the Caribbean uh, Cuba. Uh, he engaged as a conga player, a musician from Cuba named Chano Pozo, brought him into his band around in the 1940s. And it was Chano Pozo who introduced these Cuban elements into the band and this amalgamation of Cuban influence and the typical uh, bebop big band is what uh, is called Afro-Cuban. Ben, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Ben Franklin about his new book on jazz and blues musicians in South Carolina. Ben, there are, there are a number of folks that I'm not familiar with or their particular style, and you've got Clara Smith. Clara Smith, one of the early and uh, great, I think I could say, uh, blues singers. She recorded in the uh, began recording in the 1920s. She's from Spartanburg. Uh, there are a number of things about Clara Smith that are uh, relatively important, and one of them uh, is that uh, she is the first blues performer to record a tune that reflects what Robert Johnson is given credit for initiating. And that is uh, a tune called uh, Done Sold My Soul to the Devil, uh, which reflects what Robert Johnson, the Mississippi blues man, is supposed to have done at a crossroads there in Mississippi in order to become a masterful guitar player. Clara Smith's recording of that is the uh, very first recorded example of it. Also, on another tune she did, uh, she uh, employed a man who is the first black 
harmonica player to record on a blues recording. So there are a couple of firsts for her that have some significance. But a problem I have occasionally with the blues is that the singing is difficult to comprehend, that there's poor diction, uh, there are strange accents, and to my untrained ear, those occasionally pose difficulties. Uh, Many, or at least some, critics writing about Clara Smith say at least one can understand her. She had a great blues feeling, but she can be understood. Uh, That is even more obvious with somebody like Josh White, who is another uh, major blues player from uh, South Carolina. But why don't we listen to a uh, Clara Smith recording from uh, 1924, one of her early recordings. And this is Done Sold My Soul to the Devil with Don Redman on clarinet and Porter Granger on piano. When you realize not just how good she was, you think about the blues singers of that day, Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, Mamie Smith, Clara was not only the Clara Smith was not only their equal, but some people considered her better. Uh, some do, uh, did, uh, or maybe even do, but that definitely is a minority opinion. I think there's pretty much consensus that the greatest of all the female blues singers is Bessie Smith. But uh, if you look at Bessie Smith's discography, there are two instances in which she recorded with another blues uh, musician. And in both instances, it was Clara Smith, which I think indicates the degree to which Columbia Records, for which uh, both Bessie Smith and Clara Smith, no relation, uh, recorded, how highly they considered Clara Smith if they would put her, pair her, uh, with the acknowledged uh, Empress of the Blues, as she was called. Clara was from near Spartanburg. Spartanburg. And interestingly, that's, you come up with that because the Chicago Defender, which was a great black newspaper, reported her death in 1935 at the eight, early, she very early, died yes. early, said, born 40 years ago in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Yes, yes. Um, but I also found it interesting that uh, when people think of, of jazz singers, particularly those who went to Europe, the name Josephine Baker crops up. And... Evidently, Clara Smith was a mentor to Baker as a young singer. Yes. Uh, she, Clara Smith took Josephine Baker under her wing, uh, got her uh, on line for a significant career, which leads to another uh, issue with Josephine Baker, and that is she hit the world scene by way of Paris in 1925. She was a member of the troupe called La Revue Negre, the Black Review. But in addition to Josephine Baker, who was not a South Carolinian, there were South Carolinians in the troupe that accompanied her. One, a singer named B, B-E-A, Foote, F-O-O-T-E, and another was a trumpeter named Henry Goodwin. So there were two South Carolinians who were performing with this Josephine Baker, and probably the primary reason that she, Josephine Baker, became a smash hit in Paris is that she danced wearing only a girdle or a skirt of bananas. That was all. It was a sensation, obviously. (laughs) So, yes, uh, part of uh, her—she was in part uh, mentored by Clara Smith and was accompanied by a couple of other South Carolinians, B. Foote and Henry Goodwin. Well, before we leave Clara Smith, she had more than 100 recordings for Columbia Records, didn't she? Yes. Again, 
Um, she had played the vaudeville circuit. She went to New York. She made it big. She she made it really big in in the 1920s. Yes. And died heart attack or heart disease. I believe so. At at the very young age of of 42. And she even had for a while her own Clara Smith Club uh, in New York. Oh, okay. Well, have you got some other? Oh, here's here's somebody with a great name, Speedy Jones. Rufus Speedy Jones from Charleston. A rather interesting career in that uh, he uh, played with several big bands. Uh, One, Maynard Ferguson. Two, Count Basie. Three, uh, Duke Ellington. And he was known as Speedy for obvious reasons, and that is he really played fast. Uh, I can give an example of uh, Speedy Jones playing a drum solo that really is, I would say, inventive. It's primarily a drum solo for him, although he is accompanied uh, toward the end of it by Duke Ellington and the bassist uh, Joe Benjamin. It's a concert that Duke Ellington had at the Whitney Museum in New York City in, I believe, 1973. But here is a tune called Kicks, K-I-X-X, that gives a pretty good example of the deafness and speed of Rufus Speedy Jones. Ben, in, in your sketch on, on Jones in your encyclopedia, you mentioned he had an association with the Jenkins Orsonage in Charleston, and we hadn't really talked about that organization much, but it really was a nursery, if you will, or a laboratory for young black musicians in the state for about three decades. One of the great stories in all of uh, music, it seems to me, the situation was this. It was the early 1890s when a minister, a black minister in Charleston named the Reverend Daniel Jenkins uh, noticed uh, at at one time that there was a number of uh, black youth uh, who were spending the night on the streets, and he kept looking around and saw that that was increasingly the case So he, being a minister and I guess altruistic as well, uh, decided that he should look into this. One thing led to another, and he established in the first year or two of the 20th century something called originally the Orphan Aid Society, which evolved into the Jenkins Orphanage. He took in as many youth as he could without very much support. He wanted these children to develop into productive members of society. As a result, one of the main things he did at the orphanage in Charleston and later at some land in Ladson was to teach these children trades. One of the trades he taught, which leads to our current discussion, is music. He got these hand-me-down instruments hired some music teachers, taught these children the rudiments of music, and before you know it, they had a band. And in 1895, they toured going to New York to generate funds for the orphanage, and on that same tour, they went to London. This institution had been in operation for two or three years with no music, I mean, no students, he started with about four or five students, and within about four years, he was that they were performing in London. One thing led to another. More and more orphans 
came to be residents of the orphanage. And before you know it, they were performing at the Buffalo Exposition in 1901, the St. Louis World's Fair in 1905. They participated in the inaugural parades of both Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. And in 1914, they traveled to London to participate in the Anglo-American Exposition. They became so well-known that more and more people wanted their services. Therefore, in the 1910s, a second band was formed. They had two bands concurrently that were traveling, touring various places. In 1927, they went to New York to uh, to perform in the play Porgy, not Porgy and Bess, the play Porgy based on the novel of that title by DuBose Hayward. And two years later, 1929, they uh, made that same, did that same play in London. Uh, the heyday of those bands, though, where they had the most exposure was the 1920s. And after about 1930 or so, it began to diminish. But here's the point. If we're talking about South Carolina, there is no institution that created more jazz musicians than the Jenkins Orphanage. What that man and his staff and his wife, Lena, who was uh, right there with him, did was absolutely phenomenal. A lot of these musicians became established musicians. They became famous. Uh, they became productive members of society, which was the entire idea behind uh, the Jenkins Orphanage. Well, you mentioned it starting in the 1890s, and of course that's a time of economic depression nationwide, and nations having a depression, you know it's going to be bad in South Carolina mm -hmm. in, the, in the 1890s. And um, the self-help, the motivation of Reverend Mr. Jenkins was incredible. Eventually he did get some support from the community, oh, yes. but yes. it started out, he did it on a shoestring, and he did it himself, he and his wife. Yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, a great humanitarian, a great man in my book. A number of these young men and women who went on worked with the great bands, and of course, Duke Ellington was one of the great big bands, and um, Bubba Miley from South Carolina was associated with him. Yes, uh, he deserves a lot of credit for the success of the early band. Ellington's band began as the Washingtonians. Uh, pretty soon after it was performing, along came Bubber Miley from Aiken. His tenure with Ellington wasn't very long, about five years, yet it was profound in its influence. The reason is his musical conception, how he played his cornet, sometimes trumpet, but primarily cornet. He favored making kind of weird sounds. People would characterize it as uh, groans, uh, talk about his wah-wah effect. He would use the plunger, which in fact is a plunger that people use in their bathrooms to unclog toilets. Uh, he put that in his horn and move it back and forth to help create these kind of exotic sounds. One of the reasons for Ellington's great early success is what is typically called the jungle sound that his band created. And there was no one more important in shaping that sound than Bubber Miley from Aiken. So why don't we have an example of that here uh, with uh, a tune called Creole Love Call that he wrote 
with Ellington. And we have a vocal here, a wordless vocal by Adelaide Hall and some cornet uh, playing by Bubba Miley. Describe that sound. You were talking about the wah-wah sound. Yes, uh, kind of groans and wah-wah. The wah-wah created with the plunger mute. Uh, mute. Uh, the, it, it was crucial. It was foundational to the jungle sound that essentially catapulted uh, the Duke Ellington band to uh, prominence. Uh, there are many other elements, not only, uh, especially the genius of uh, Ellington himself, but uh, the, a crucial element was the trumpet playing of uh, Bubber Miley from Aiken, South Carolina. Yeah. Well, Ben, I hate to say this, Alfred's giving us the sign. We just got another minute or two. Can <clears throat> we just have another minute or two? But from Aiken, from Sherall, from Spartanburg, from Charleston, from outside Trio, um, these South Carolinians had an incredible impact on the American and the world music scene. Oh, yes. I mean, there, we could go on uh, indefinitely uh, on this very topic and probably not run out of uh, things that they've done. Uh, they compose tunes that uh, are part of the popular uh, awareness in this country. Uh, magnificent uh, musicians, instrumentalists. I, I include in this book some broadcasters who were influential, uh, uh, an influential New York club owner, Ed Smalls from uh, Charleston, owned uh, and operated Smalls Paradise in Harlem. Uh, it goes on and on. Any last words before we sign off today? Uh, no, uh, other than, uh, gosh, <laughs> there's so much left unsaid, but I, I cannot add anything in another uh, minute or two. Well, Benjamin Franklin V, your new book, An Encyclopedia of South Carolina Jazz and Blues Musicians, is a real treasure. There's so many wonderful nuggets in here. Folks, this is the kind of thing you can just flip in, and whether it's Bubba Miley or Clara Smith or Chubby Checker, you're going to find something interesting about the Palmetto State. Ben, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Walter, my pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. We all know about Chubby Checker and Eartha Kitt, but what about Escarita and his Escarettes? All of these folks had an impact on the development of music in 20th century America. And what made this program even more special was the fact that Ben and I could not only discuss the music, but then take an interlude to listen to an example. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina.